Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Delks and usually we'd be joined by Justin Peach here on the show, but he's not joining us for the first and last bits of the show this week. He'll be back with us when we go around the grounds here on the Second Tier. But we are joined by some guests on the show this week, including Paul Mann from the Reading Podcast Elm Park Royals. Paul, how are you? I'm okay. I'm not doing too bad considering uh, the defeat on Friday. But yeah, I'm not too bad there, Ryan. Well, that's good to hear. Also with us is Omar Renane from that Millwall podcast. Omar, are we well? I'm very well, Ryan. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. Welcome to the number one championship-specific podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. We're going to go through all the games in the championship across the past weekend, talk about some of the news from the past few days, and then we'll finish off with Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight right at the end. So on Friday night, a double by Chet Evans. Go Preston, a 2-1 win away at Reading. What did you make of the game, poor man? Uh, first half was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> Anyone who watched the first half, um, I don't know why you bothered. It was absolutely terrible. Second half, quality picked up a bit. Preston probably did deserve to win. They had the two best opportunities. Uh, they had one more in the first half. So I think it was probably a fair result. But disappointing from us. We just didn't get going at all. And you look at the subs bench and you have players like Jao, Jaria, Long, all there who could have started. And our manager's consistently complaining about the fact that we look tired. Why is he not playing him? I find that a bit confusing. Yeah, you mentioned Preston here. What did you think of them as an outfit on Friday night? I thought they looked fine. I think they'd probably be up there right at the top half of the season. Um, I think it's a pretty average championship season at the moment. I don't think it's the highest quality. But Preston, yeah, they're very hard to break down. As we all know, that's not like I'm breaking a trade secret there. Uh, um yeah, I think goals may be their issue in the long term. We kind of gave them to, but we'll see. Uh, if I was a Preston fan, I'd be feeling a little bit more optimistic than I was this time last season. Well, after a great start to the season, it's now just the one win in eight for Reading. You've slipped down to 12th, which actually isn't too bad considering one win in eight. But nonetheless, are you a bit worried about half how far Reading could slide down the table, Paul? Um, I'm not too worried because I kind of expected us to drop off. I'm not totally surprised by that. I didn't expect us to be in the top six at any point, like coming into December, January. I'd hope I'd be wrong, but it could change. But I think we're going to be fine. Um, I'm more optimistic than I was at the start of the season. Let's put it that way. I would think still having 26 points after 19 games is more than I expected. So relatively, I'm quite happy and I think we'll stay up. I don't think it'd be easy, but I think we're manager. It's quite incredible, isn't it, that we're still talking about Reading staying up, despite uh, how good the start has been to the season. But I suppose that talks about uh, the expectations that many had at the beginning of the season. Having said that, how are fans feeling about Paul Lintz right now, Paul? Oh, that's a mixed one. I think overall, I'd say it's pretty high rating of approval, I would say. Um I think with Paul Ince, he's going to find it really hard going into January because I think we could lose a lot of players. So I think that's when it will come harder for him. I think the World Cup break is going to help Paul Ince. And I think the game next week against Hull City is huge for him. There has to be a game that we don't lose and we ideally win. But that won't be easy at all. Holland now got their new manager. But for Paul Ince, I still think he's got the backing of most of our fans. I think people find him a bit frustrating sometimes, some of the decisions he makes, but overall, I still think he's in credit. He's still very honest in his post-match interviews, isn't he? It, does, does that help him 
when it comes across to the fans? Does that help him come across as someone who knows what he's talking about? Or do fans actually find that a bit frustrating at times? I think it helps you to a certain extent. And then after a while, you just find it annoying, don't you? If something doesn't actually change, it's kind of, it's all well and good. I think with Paul Ince, I think the expectations were so low when he came in that the fact that a lot has changed and maybe some of it is related to him actually off the pitch. And I think he's seen as really pushing that forward and helping the structural change all that is behind the scenes, not on the pitch. So, yeah, I think his honesty does help him a lot overall. I think people were kind of getting a little bit tired of hearing just the same thing from their manager, which is frustrating. We've all been there with managers. You just trot out the same thing every single week. You never know what Paul Ince is going to come out with. He could all of a sudden just declare that he hates the Arctic Monkeys. You just never know. I won't blame him after the latest album. Uh, let's go to the den. Millwall nil, Hull nil. It's the third game in a row where Millwall have failed to score. But saying that, I have no idea how Millwall haven't won this one, Omar. Very true, yeah. I mean, obviously, first half, Hull went down to 10 men. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an interesting game in the sense of, you know, I felt like we were trying to edge our way into it. The red card came out a good time, I felt like, for us. But we never seemed to do well against sides that got out to 10 men. And we huffed and puffed in the second half. We had 17 attempts on goal, only four on target. Um, and that kind of tells the story straight away there, if you, if you really. I think it's, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely two points dropped. But, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully get a win before the interna uh, international break. Yeah, you mentioned the red cards. That came after Charlie Cresswell was on the receiving end of a fairly high boot from Oscar yeah. Stupinan. Uh, Cresswell <laughs> posted a picture on social media afterwards where he had a gigantic black eye and what looked like stitches as well as Stupinan was sent off, which meant it was an even trickier day for Hall. But Omar, do you think that just made them more resolute and more inclined to sit back and just soak up everything Millwall threw at them? Yeah, exactly that. And we're not really the greatest of teams when it comes to breaking down teams, you know, in the final areas, like in the final third of the pitch. Um, and I think at times we also struggle to move the ball quick enough around the back to try and, you know, when teams are sitting deep and narrow naturally, when they're down to 10 men, we, we tend to struggle in them sort of scenarios, really. So, yeah, definitely it was a tough one to take, really. But, you know, it's another clean sheet, I suppose. Two nil-nils in a row. Gary Rowett football. <laughs> Gary Rowett football. Well, as things stands, the wall sits 10th, three points off the playoffs, despite the lack of goals recently. Are you still seeing this as your best chance for a top six finish since being back in the championship? I feel like we've said it the last two or three seasons now. Like we're kind of just lurking in that area between like 7th and 9th and 10th. And it's like just we're in that region. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see uh, with the international break how teams come back afterwards and what kind of changes in the division. I think it'll start to take a bit more shape after that. We're in the region, we're in there. Um, I think in January it's going to be interesting to see if we strengthen. And he's alluding to the fact we need a striker. We're missing that kind of presence up top. Afobi and Bradshaw both had like, moments this season, but it's not really been a sustained period where we've seen our strikers get goals, really. So it's definitely something we need to address in the January window. Who would you say has been the standout player? For Millwall this season, no more. There's a couple, but obviously Ian Fleming gets the headlines. He's got five goals, six goals, I think, this season. Uh, the Dutch number ten. We, I mean, he was yesterday had a free kick, and he's, he's got like, oozing that kind of quality on him. He's kind of got the bravado about him as well, and he, he's coming across as a real top player and adjusting to the championship in quite a quick time. Um, but I'm going to say Billy Mitchell, midfield, one of our own midfielder. He's an engine up and down the pitch all game, and he's um. Showing a bit of quality as well at the moment. And if he sustains that, I mean, we'll be thinking, can we hold on to him in a couple of years' time, to be honest? 
Mm. He's great in East Enders as well. Paul and Omar, thank you for now. We'll come back to you both later to play Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. In the meantime, just now, we'll be heading around the grounds and we'll begin with Coventry. He got a huge 1-0 win away at Watford, thanks to Victor Jokerez. Jerry Crone is from the Coventry podcast, The Knee Lamptey Show. Jerry, your boys are flying high, aren't they? Uh, yeah, surely the most unpredictable team in the Championship at the minute. The No one's quite sure where this has come from or how it's happened. But I think, obviously, as Cov fans, we're all delighted that uh, the season's looking much sunnier than it did a few weeks ago. You're now 15th in the table, which is, as you say, quite surprising considering Coventry were literally bottom of the table not too long ago. But do you see yourself continuing to climb up the table? Short answer is absolutely no idea. And the big thing is that there are so many variables now is even if you take the off-the-pitch stuff out of it for just a moment, is I think we've got two games before the international break and then we find ourselves heading into the January transfer window. And I think after that, the problem is going to be the vultures that will be swarming around people like Victor Jokerez, Gustavo Hamer, who again have been brilliant for us this season. Uh, and we, Jokerez especially hasn't scored as many as he did last season. But what he gives us in terms of his all-round play is just totally irreplaceable for us. We will we will struggle to find a player who will be even a fraction of, of what Jokerez is to us. Yeah, and this new form is coinciding with the chaos that's happening off the pitch over who owns the stadium and where Coventry are going to be playing their future games. Now, it does look like the next couple of games are certainly going to be played at the Coventry Building Society Arena. But as a Cov fan, how frustrating is it that once again there are question marks over where the club is going to be playing its home games? It is frustrating, but we are sort of really used to it now. And so I guess... Being punched in the face is is bad, but if you keep getting punched in the face, I guess like it's not as bad as if you had only ever been punched in the face once. Um, the thing next is going to be Mike Ashley because he's the preferred bidder for ACL, which is Arena Co- Arena Coventry Limited, who is the business that Wasps own, that own and run the Coventry Building Society Arena, and it looks very likely that he will buy it. And if he buys it, you would imagine it will be very likely that he will buy Coventry City. And it remains to be seen whether that is a good thing or a bad thing or what that will mean to us. Um, But the pubs of Coventry are all very excited about it, no doubt. Cheers, Jerry. And hello, Justin Peach. Welcome to the podcast. Good day to you, Ryan. I thought I'd give you my, my usual hello. Hello. Good day. Hello. Hello. Well, thank you for finally joining us here on the second tier. Uh, Justin, this was a good game, wasn't it? Coventry defended well, were dangerous on the break. Watford had a glorious chance to equalise for Ishmael Assar, but he's missed an open goal. They also forced Ben Wilson into some big saves, but Coventry will be thanking their lucky stars that they have a striker like Victor Jacarez, who was brilliant here. What a player he is, Justin. Yeah, he was fantastic and he ran uh, the two centre-halves, Trusta Kong and Tiralta, ragged pretty much all game. Bilic came out after the game and said um, he was he was up there as one of the best they've come across this season. Um, and yeah, he's, he's probably one of the best all-round strikers in the division. Um, his ability to, to play with his uh, back to goal, his ability to make runs off defenders, his ability to carry the ball as well. I don't think he's one of the best finishers in the league, but he's certainly a very good one. 
Um, and you mix all that together and you've got a very, very good forward. And the form he's in, his, his ability to link up with the players that are around him, whoever they are, that might be Callum O'Hare, Casey Palmer, in this case, Jamie Allen, who put in a really good assist for him for the winner. Um, yeah, he's a match winner and, and has been a match winner on, on, on many occasions this season for Coventry. And, and long may it continue because he's, he's a brilliant player. It's a brilliant bit of business last season, million pounds. Could go for 15, 20, 25. Could end up paying for a new stadium if they get the right bid for him. Yeah, tremendous, tremendous player. Yeah, he really is. Still quite young as well, but he's showing all the signs of a future Premier League striker, isn't he? Without a doubt. Coventry, 15th now, which is pretty spectacular when they were literally bottom of the league three weeks ago. But it's funny how quickly things can change in football. Just two losses from 12, which will always see your team fly up the table in this division, especially considering how compact it is. But I'm looking at it now thinking... Could Coventry be an outsider for the top six? I mean, we were expecting them to be around there at the start of the season. Moment, Justin, it's just extenuating circumstances have meant they've had to have somewhat of a false start. But you look at the table, sat 15th, six points off 7th, two games in hand though. So it's not outside the realms of possibility. I think a lot will depend on how many players they keep in January. I imagine the likes of Victor Jokeres will attract a bit of interest, considering how good he is. Callum O'Hare's long been linked with a move to Burnley. Uh, and then others like Gustavo Hamer, for example, are just very, very good players. <laughs> but without a doubt, they're on their way towards being the team many were expecting this season. And that is quite impressive, considering, as we say, they've had a false start because of everything that's happened with the pitch and other things like uh, where they're going to be playing games. Uh, but Watford's winning streak has come to an end. What are you thinking with them after this result, Justin? It was a bit of a flat performance at times, and it's probably a reminder that this Watford team can do a lot better or needs to do a lot better, and Billich needs a lot more time to, to refine things. Um, and they still don't have the right personnel. Um, I know we can get carried away with with wins and, and winning runs, but they breed confidence. Um, and you start to get a lot out of players that you don't usually expect, like Kembe looked like a world beater. It looked like an average player again um, coming up here. But no, it's um, it's. I think, as I say, it just brings a lot of people up back down to earth that, yeah, this team is, is beatable. Coventry had a game plan. They had some really good chances, but Coventry had some really good chances in the first half as well. Um, and I just think they, they just need a lot more time under Bilic to, to really, um, I don't know, hit, hit their potential or have individuals hit their potential. Because I don't think Sars really got going yet under under Bilic. Pedro, we know his ability, and obviously Keenan Davis has been injured for a couple of games. Um, so I think there's a lot more to come through from them. It just needs time. It is quite funny with Watford, isn't it, how Ishmael Asar's got five goals for the season, which is actually quite a good tally when you compare it to the top scorers in the league. Mm. But I agree with you, he hasn't really got going. And Chao Pedro, in moments, has been fantastic. But at the same time, I don't think he's really got going either. But you have got two players there who are undoubtedly two of the best players in the division. Mm. So the fact that Watford when you don't really think about it too much, you think, but they haven't really got going yet. But they're still sat seventh in the table and not a million miles off the top two. And I suppose that kind of gives me flashes back to the Isco Munoz season. So I wouldn't put it outside the realms of possibility of Watford, you know, just having a good old blast at the top two in the second half of the season. It's just, uh, it, it's been a bit underwhelming so far, considering we know the standard of talent they've got there. But as you say, a January window may help them get some players who really help knit it all mm. together a lot better. Um, Keenan Davis had a moment here where he had the ball in the back of the net, celebrated for a bit too long before realising that the goal had been disallowed, which 
I've seen it a million times in football, but never fails to make me chuckle. In a massive game at the top of the championship, Sheffield United thumped Burnley 5-2. Only the second time the Clarets have lost in the league this season. What a game this was. It was fairly even in the first half, and then Sheffield United just absolutely blitzed Burnley in the second half, didn't they? It was ridiculous. I honestly thought we were gearing up for a one-all draw. Um <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely mad and I think credit to both teams for really making a, a good game of it because even in the first half, I thought the first half was brilliant. Um, you know, Burnley were, were getting in behind quite a few times. Sheffield United grew uh, into the half and obviously the Jack Robinson mistake for the second Burnley goal, it was just an unreal, it was a really good first half and then the second half was just breathtaking. I think if we were to describe a game of the season, this would be up there. I mean, the atmosphere at Bramble Lane was absolutely brilliant as well. It really makes me want to go up there to see a few games this season. I'm sure we should get a chance. Uh, I mean, we have to, especially with these big games. Um, but yeah, it was just fantastic. And it was a game of cliches, I thought. Game of two halves, men against boys. It was just ridiculous. It, yeah, top, top game. It was a brilliant advert for the championship, wasn't it? And it's one of the many reasons why we love this league, Justin, because sometimes it's just it throws up some absolute corkers of games. The thing is, in the second half, it could have been more for Sheffield United had it not been for Aaron Murich, who had to make some unbelievable saves. It was a very, very peculiar second half, wasn't it? But Jack Robinson had a very mixed afternoon, didn't he? He deflected the first goal in and then was at fault for Burnley's second, but managed to redeem himself by getting the goal that put Sheffield United ahead. Let's make no mistake about it, though, Justin. This is a statement win for Sheffield United, isn't it? To convincingly beat the team top of the league, by far the way, the best team in the division so far, who'd only lost once prior to this game. Truly phenomenal. Yeah, it was, it was unreal. Um, and I don't think they outplayed Burnley by any means. Um, I just think they played to their strengths and Burnley's weaknesses. Clear as day. It was literally just a physical physical game from a Sheffield United perspective that won them um, with, with quality as well. I'm not dis disregarding any of uh, any of the Blades' work in this game, but the, the press, they, they activate their press a lot higher, which is why they, they force the, the, the goal the, the straight after half-time. Um, the set pieces and throw-ins, set plays, all of them, um, that is essentially what won the game. And I think the turning point, I mean, you can argue the goal is a big turning point, McBurney's um, goal put in, uh, equalising for Sheffield United but I think Murich and Egan um, there's a moment just shortly after that where Egan's literally just stood in front of Murich ball comes in Murich doesn't deal with it and I think at that point Sheffield United smell the game for them they smell blood and, and then they go for the jugular and they <laughs> they, they, they rag Burnley oh it was it wasn't nice to, to watch it was uh, it was messy um, but yeah it, it was a really really good display and I think Hagenbottom deserves a lot of credit they're getting his team motivated again because Robinson had to come out in that second half I thought he'd be subbed off because it, it was a terrible terrible mistake for that second goal for Burnley but yeah top top effort from from Chevron I credit to everybody it was a, a really really good performance from them the man of the match for me was Ollie McBurney, who's now scored more goals in his last 13 games <laughs> for Sheffield United than he managed in his previous 98. He's now joint top scorer in the Championship alongside four other players, including teammate Iliman Ndai. And his turnaround in form is rather ludicrous when you think of it. Isn't it? He only started nine games last season and... I'd say he looked a shadow of the man he was at Swansea, but I think even that's been too generous to him because he was just awful, <laughs> plain and simple. He was bad, really, really bad. He, he didn't really look like a championship player at all. But 
if he left Bramall Lane last summer, I don't think any Sheffield United fans would have battered an eyelid, to be completely honest. But it is incredible that now he's not just scoring goals, but his hold-up play and just being a general nuisance has it's been brilliant. I'd say he looks to be back to the play that he was from his Swansea days, but I think he looks even better than that right now because <laughs> he's full of confidence. I think, actually, right now he'd be my pick to win the Golden Boot this season, Justin. If you look wow. at the stats that he's posted as well, I think he's top of the table for expected goals, showing he's getting in the right right mm-hmm. places at the right time. But now he's got that goal-scoring touch that he's been missing for so long now. And he's a man to be feared, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's a, he's a top, top player. I did predict it at the start of the season, by the way. In our uh, preview, um, in our championship predictions, I, I did suggest that he would hit half of 40 goals alongside Rian Brewster. Um, so I, I, I at least had faith in him. But he's, he's a really good player. And I think confidence is a massive thing for any footballer. It's even bigger for strikers. And you saw that it was low on confidence. I think Heckingbottom said after the game um, against Burnley that he's, he's made lifestyle changes, which are paying dividends for him. I think he's doing this as well while he needs a, a, an operation on a hernia. Um, so he's playing with a, a pretty significant injury as well, which I think is more astounding given his form. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, I, think this, um, I think this game encapsulated him, I'd say it would. It summed him up nicely. It summed him up nicely because he was pressing, he was aggressive, um, he packed his teammates up when, he, when they needed backing up um, and, he was, and he was scoring goals and getting in good positions as well. Yeah, really, really good 10 out of 10 performance from McBurney. So Burnley's 16-game unbeaten run has come to an end in rather spectacular fashion. After the game, Vincent Company said, maybe we need this defeat. Burnley is a humble club, but as we've done well for a sustained period of time, we have to make sure we don't get carried away and losses bring that home. What do you think of that, Justin? I think that's pretty much what we say with any good team when they've gone an unbeaten run and they lose. You take a lot of lessons from it. Um Burnley will certainly take a lot of lessons, such as trying to play through a high aggressive press, um, trying to cope with uh, teams who are very efficient at set plays. Um, I think Burn uh, Company's answer to that was to not give up so much ground, um, which I disagree with. I think if you've got, I think if you've got someone like Mike Mike Jackson, for example, who was a big Burnley centre half and he was playing, and Vincent Company as well, who was one of the world's best centre halves, and you can't defend from set pieces or have a plan to defend from set pieces. That's problematic, um, but I do think Burnley will take a lot of lessons from it. I thought first half was a really good performance from them. Second half, they just couldn't cope. And that's a personality thing, but I think that's down to the age of their squad, the experience that they lack as well um, throughout the throughout the starting uh, 11. I think Jack, um, Jack Cork, Josh Cullen, they were the two of the most, most experienced players on the pitch. So yeah, a lot of lessons to be learned, but the big reaction comes comes in the next game. Considering how brilliant they've been this season, I think we can let them off for one mm-hmm. <laughs> terrible half of football. Perhaps Burnley did need this in a way because I think it highlights where they need to strengthen. Defensively, they have been solid this season, but it seems as if they're fading a bit in that department because 11 goals conceded in your last five isn't a great tally for a side looking to get promoted. Sure, that looks a lot worse when you concede five, but it's still just one clean sheet in those five games. But then... There were also positives on this game. Muric proved himself to be a good shot stopper when he's not had many chances to prove it this season. I've still got a couple of question marks over you know, his commanding of the box. But overall, he looks a fairly good goalkeeper. Manuel Benson was brilliant once again. He's arguably been the best player in the championship over the past fortnight or so. Mm. So look, it, it was a fairly diabolical second half, but I'm not too worried. And if anything, it might actually help Vincent Company learn where his side need to strengthen and 
what he needs to, needs to work on as a manager. Uh, speaking of managers, Carlos Corbran made it two wins from two at West Brom after winning 1-0 away at QPR. West Brom were good here. They weren't too convincing in their win against Blackpool in the week, but this was a good performance. I thought they were professional, managed the game well before and after the goal. They looked a lot more functional, which is not something we've said a lot about them this season, Justin. I think that's the key word. Um, and it's, I mean, doing my notes, I've been, I was struggling to find the word to summarise the performances up under Colburn so far. And it's progressively got more functional. Dysfunctional against Sheffield United, better against Blackpool, and certainly a lot more functional here against QPR because QPR are a good team. And whilst they haven't scored in, in the last three games, um, they have been creating chances. But West Brom didn't allow that. They were structured. They were solid. They were resolute. Um, they saw the game out and they, they bounced back from, from from small setbacks in the game. You look at that Dean Garner chance um, in the first half where he gets it really, really wrong. Where he should have really put the ball in the back of the net. And you think at that point, from a West Brom perspective, I'm sure all the supporters would have said the same thing. Here we go again. Um, but they didn't. They recovered. Um, John Swift was 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 great and, and active throughout the game. And Kyle Bartley answered quite a lot of critics by not only defending brilliantly, um, but also grabbing the winner. So, yeah, it was a really, really good functional performance from West Brom. And it, it allowed them to, to build on some really solid blocks, which they need to do quickly. Yeah, John Swift having another good game for West Brom. Three times I've seen him play well for the Albion <laughs> since joining. Two of those times I've been with him playing under Carlos Corbran. Make of that what you will. Uh, overall, this is exactly what Carlos Corbran would have wanted, wasn't he? he? He had four games in charge before the World Cup. He's won two and he's got one more remaining. I think he'd have ripped your hand off for just two wins, to be honest, considering how bad things have been. But the fact he's got one more game to deal with is a bit of a godsend for him because that month or so he'll have with the World Cup on will be invaluable for him to get across his ideas. So we all got a bit worried about a surprise relegation potentially being on the cards <laughs> at West Brom, but I'd say right now it looks like they should be a lot better after the World Cup. It is just two wins, but considering the plight they were in, they could be absolutely massive. So, yeah, hats off to you, Carlos Corbran. One point from three games now for QPR, Justin. What are you thinking with them? Yeah, look, I predicted a bit of a performance slump and I think they're, they're going through it. I know they've got injuries to, to tend with now um, and it does highlight that they do have a small squad and mountain injuries in a small squad aren't um, aren't ideal in, in the greatest in the greatest of circumstances um I think the issue that they've got now at the moment obviously as I mentioned um, just a few moments ago is that they haven't scored in the last three games which um for a team who are again like West Brom have been a very functional team under uh, under McBeal um it's problematic but they have been creating chances aside from this game against West Brom who were brilliant defensively um they have been creating chances which is a good a good place to be it's just about putting those chances away when they come um and not being wasteful in possession but Chris Willett came back into this game uh, alongside Elias Chair so there are building blocks there but yeah it's just a case of managing through games getting to that World Cup break and getting that month um to get players back fit get Beal's uh, ideas across a little bit more and obviously they can go into January or try and get into January um, with a route to strengthen as well. Rotherham 1, Norwich 2. I came away from this game being more impressed with Rotherham than I was Norwich, Justin, which I'm a bit surprised about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, considering the gulf of uh, uh, budgets with the teams, um, yeah, it certainly, certainly was a surprise. I think I was more surprised with how many chances Rotherham we're allowed to create. Um, I think if you've got a team going for promotion, you have to be a lot more um, 
structured and solid uh, in terms of not giving the opposition too many um, too many good moments. And, and, and Norwich didn't do that. And Rotherham did fail to take advantage. I think if you look at the goal, for example, how far Rathbone's been able to run with the ball without being engaged by a defender, Rotherham took advantage of that moment. Um, but they were just struggled. With, I think just that lack of quality in the final thirds, just just catching up with them a little bit because they created an abundance of chances here, just failed to put them away, and it's frustrating. But considering they've gone toe to toe with two teams who have come down from the Premier League in two consecutive games, I think speaks volumes of um, Matt Taylor and the job he's doing now at uh, Rotherham. Yeah, eighteen-year-old wing back Brooke Norton Cuffey was excellent for Rotherham on loan from Arsenal, but caused Norwich all sorts of problems. The peculiar thing is, he's usually a right-sided player, however. He was asked to play on the left here and gave Max Ahrens a torrid time. And when you're an 18-year-old doing that to a player who has recently reportedly been interesting the likes of Barcelona and Man United, pretty good day at the office for him, I'd say. Uh, But he's caught my eye on a few occasions this season, so he looks like a very bright talent for Rotherham. Ollie Rathbone had a good game in the field as well, as did Dan Barlasso as per usual. Perhaps man of the match though was the Rotherham fan who gave his jumper to Wes Harding so he could dry the ball before the throw-in. It's it was absolutely brilliant, Justin. I love that. Yeah, and it was a cold day as well, wasn't it? Like it wasn't a day where you you know want to give over your warm winter wear for um for a throw-in. It's arguably gonna make it wet. So absolutely hats off to you and quick thinking as well. Um I think West Brom got in trouble for that last season as well, actually, which is interesting because um, Furlong does it all the time, doesn't he? But uh, yeah, yeah, fair play. Quick thinking from a Rotherham from there. And if you're on the row at um, at New York Stadium, take a spare jumper with you. I think everyone will just be, you know, dishing up all sorts <laughs> of knitwear over <laughs> over the next few weeks now, won't they? But I, I, I liked how he was just wearing a T-shirt underneath and just owned it. He wasn't yeah. cold at all. He was absolutely fine with that. But yeah, fair play to Wes Harding as well for agreeing to <laughs> use the jumper. <laughs> but it is just one point for five games now for Rotherham. Perhaps a bit unfortunate because they have, you know, given two promotion contenders good games this week. So I think Matt Taylor will be disappointed that they didn't get anything to show for it, which says a lot about how well they've actually been playing despite not getting results. Norwich not at the best here, but seven points from a possible nine is a turnaround in form. It's just not been the most convincing, has it? Yeah, like I said, they're, they're conceding a lot of chances and that worries me a hell of a lot. You go back to that Stoke game last weekend, Stoke should have won that. Rotherham should have won this game. Um, it's it's massively concerning, but I think if they're getting points on the board, like any team who are in a good run of form, but getting points on the board, um, I think it's a massive plus. And as I say, if, if they're in within, within a shout of that top two, come the World Cup break, Dean Smith will be very pleased because it gives him, like every manager, a chance to work on a lot of issues that they've got. Um, and it gives the likes of Sara, Nunez, all the new players that have come in, time to uh, time to bed in a little bit more and, and yeah, have time, have that really important time under Dean Smith. But yeah, the concern for me is just defensively, um, they look not a shambles, but they just don't look convincing at all. It's really, really worrying. Let's take a quick break. Just Steph, that we'll talk about wins for Blackburn and Birmingham. Back to the second tier podcast, Blackburn bounced back from their first loss in five by beating Huddersfield 1-0. Copy and paste here my notes from past (laughs) Blackburn games. Not the most convincing of wins for Blackburn. Uh, I'm not going to go on a big tirade here, Justin, about how I don't think Blackburn are as good 
as their tape as their position in the table suggests. It's it's an unconvincing win against a team who quite plainly aren't very good, and I don't think we've particularly learned anything new about either side. But what's a what's a definition of a convincing win for you? Because for me, although they didn't create shed loads of chances like other teams do, um, they did limit Huddersfield to. I think it was Danny Ward who put a, a cross shot across the box and it was cleared away. So if you're limiting teams, you know, if it's the rule of percentage. If you're limiting teams to not a lot and you're not and you're creating just enough for you, surely that counts as a convincing win. I don't know. I don't think it's convincing when you consider Huddersfield have only scored one goal from open play against Mark Fotheringham. And I think if, from what I've seen from a lot of Blackburn fans, many weren't particularly impressed with them here either. Because I've seen um, plenty say, why were we sitting back against bottom of the league? And that is a good question to ask, considering they could have very easily, um, if they really wanted to, really took the sword to Huddersfield, but they didn't and were seemingly happy to just hold on to that 1-0 win. So I don't think it was convincing at all. And from what I've seen from Blackburn fans, I think many of them didn't think this was the most convincing either. Yep, I mean, fair enough. But I think I'll sit on the, the side of the fence where I... I'll put that in a, a, a mathematical category of convincing. Case okay, scoreline, not necessarily convincing, but I don't think they were really troubled by Huddersfield, which is perhaps um, why they didn't really go for the juggler because they never really felt under threat. But I guess the good teams in this division would do that. I mean, if you look at Sheffield United, for example, they could have scored 10 against Burnley in that second half. They went for the jugular and perhaps Blackburn didn't. So, yeah, I think it's a learning curve again for them if you're basing it on that. For Huddersfield, I genuinely cannot see where their next win is coming from for them because they are so so poor aren't they because it's remarkable really that they've got four wins on the board because in the vast majority of games that I've seen them in they've offered very little genuine threat have they they've managed one goal from open play since Mark Fothering came in and that was that Nakayama cross which he scored by accident (laughs) last weekend it's also the only goal they've managed in five games now. Mm. So it's getting incredibly desperate and they're now five points off second bottom. They're in serious danger of being cut adrift and I don't want to relegate them in November, Justin. That would be ridiculous, but I really struggle to see how they get out of this. The only saving grace could be that they play a blinder in the January transfer window, but it would have to be a phenomenal transfer window for them to you know, even finish not bottom. And let's be honest, who who has ever had in the championship an incredible January transfer window? Um, it's a difficult window to, to make moves in, especially when you don't have a lot of money uh, to spend. You don't have a lot of money to spare. If they did, they would have recruited better in the summer um, but unfortunately I agree with you I can't see where their next win's coming from I can't see where their next goal is coming from like I said their best chance against Blackburn was that Danny Ward cross into the six yard box um, it's desperate it's uh, yeah I'm exasperated with, with Huddersfield because I'm, I'm saying the same thing over and over again with, with, with every week I think Mark Fabregas got them defending relatively okay um, he's got them solid but if you can't coach any attacking patterns into your team what hope is what hope is there for you it's uh, yeah incredibly desperate 
It's, if we take a step back for a second, it's truly remarkable that this is the same club who are in the playoff final in May and now yeah. look to be on a one-way trip to League One. That's how bad things have got at Huddersfield. Birmingham continued to climb up the table after beating Stoke 2-1. Not a game flushed with quality. Stoke might actually have a right to claim they were the better side here, but we're just let down by sloppy mistakes. Yeah, well, it's just... <laughs> Again, it's another thing. It's a, it's a cut and paste job with, with Stoke as well. It's it's, it's poor errors. Um, their home form is terrifyingly bad. I think it's something that could really, really drag them into a relegation battle. Um, and they started this game well, but they just shot themselves in the foot with the Jagielka mistake. And um, I think if you consider Birmingham City's clinical edge in this game in both boxes, that's what's won them the game. Stoke are very messy. And it's left Alex Neil um, considering going more direct. Um, with his tactical approach, with I th- which I think is absolutely astounding, because I don't think they they can play that way. I don't think they can play a direct style of football because I don't think they've got uh, the legs or ball when he's in midfield to, to to pick up loose balls. If you do start to play that way, so yeah, I'm increasingly becoming worried about Stoke. Well, Alex Neil admitted after the game that the team's confidence is extremely fragile right now, which is. Uh, I suppose going some way to explain the errors at the back that they seem to repeatedly do but it's four losses from five now they sit 19th considering Michael O'Neill lost his job in August have things really got much better under Alex Neil I, I think you can see what he's trying to do he's trying to play an attractive passing style but I'm not sure the players are there to do it Phil Jagielka bless his heart you've got to have a bit of agility to be able to play out from the back and he seems like he's struggling at the ripe old age of 40 but I also think it's a bit naive to play that way if your players are low on confidence like he says they are so this squad should be doing much much better there's no doubt about that it's a top half squad at the very least but they're not playing like it and the manager's got to take the blame for that I'm not by any means saying he should be sacked I think he should be there for the long term but they're really really struggling right now and if things carry on, then they will be in a relegation battle, won't they? Which they shouldn't be. No. But just because of how results have gone so far, it's difficult to see them, you know, putting together two wins on the bounce, for example, or creating a positive run of form, is it? Uh, let's talk Birmingham. Just two losses in 12 now for them. They're steadily climbing up the table. But the question is, Justin, how far do you think they could go? How far do I think Birmingham can go? That's a really, really good question. Um Look, considering that we both predicted them to go down in the summer and they've played well beyond our expectations, I think if they can stay in and around this this position of mid-table, that would be an incredible season for Birmingham City. You've got to consider the squad depth. I mean, if you take um, Bakuna, Hannibal, Chong or Bidic out of the team, they've got to rely on youngsters. They've got to, you know, George Hall, for example, he's 18. They've got to rely on youngsters coming to fill those, fill, fill those gaps. And I think that's... Um, I think it's exemplifies the level of job that John Eustace is doing. He's, he's created a real togetherness in the squad, which don't think's been there since Guy Rout was in charge, which is going back six years now, which is scary. Age is terrible. Terrifying, sorry. Um, but yeah, I think I think you've got to highlight the job that John Eustace is doing before we start getting carried away about anything that they can achieve this season. Um, they've got to get to January and hope that the takeover's done because if they can add to the squad, I think they could be playoff contenders. Um, based purely on how organised they are and how efficient they are, they just they they, they can they can only achieve that if they've got a deeper squad for me. Luton got their first win in four by beating Blackpool one nil. Not said this very often, but I thought Luton were actually a bit fortunate here. Yeah, Blackpool were brilliant. Um, 
Oh, I said brilliant. They were they were very good going forwards, created a lot of chances. Um, but considering that Tom Lockyer was willing to put his uh, future offspring on the line for for the win, um, I think yeah, you deserve to to come away with at least a clean sheet from the win uh, from the game. Um, yeah, they didn't create an abundance of chances, um, but they 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 ground it out. They they got the three points, got the clean sheet. And they're the sort of games Nathan Jones, I think, I think looks good. It tells a lot about his squad. Um, it tells a hell of a lot about his squad and his team about what they're willing to do to get those three points. Yeah, Tom Lockyer. That was probably the best individual performance I've seen from a defender this season. He alone made two clearances off the line, made 16 clearance yeah. in this game, blocked four shots. That is what dying for three points is all about. Neil Warnock would be very proud right now. Ethan Horvath was definitely the busy of the two keepers, though. Luton just offended for their lives. So perhaps a bit fortunate, but they desperately needed three points after failing to win in their previous three. Back-to-back losses for Blackpool, who looked nervously over their shoulder. Swansea came from two goals down to rescue a point at home to Wigan. 2-2, it finished. Swansea may actually feel disappointed to have only got a point here. They missed some good chances before they got the penalty late on. We have been a bit worried about Wigan recently, Justin, after five losses on the bounce. Do you think Liam Richardson will want more performances like this going forward or do you think he'll be expecting a bit better? I think he'll be expecting a little bit better. Um, I think if you put it on a spectrum of performances, this hasn't been one of the best by any means this season. Obviously, they give away a two-goal lead as well. Didn't create a hell of a lot aside from set pieces. Um, so certainly we'll need a lot more from his team. I think it's the same thing for Russell Martin. He'll be very disappointed that his side hasn't haven't been able to come away with the, the points. But for Richardson, yeah, he's, he's, he's needing a lot more from his from his players. Um, they're conceding a lot of chances, conceded a lot of chances in this game um, and failed to defend uh, for the goals as well. So yeah, uh, he'll need a lot more if they're going to come out of that bottom three. A very competitive bottom half. A goal from Mark Harris gave Cardiff a 1-0 win away at Sunderland. Sunderland very sloppy in possession here. It gave Cardiff a penalty, which they missed, but then they gave the ball away in the lead up to the goal as well. Anything on this game, Justin? Yeah, I think Sunderland are incredibly inconsistent at the moment. Uh, digging a little bit deeper, they've got the youngest squad in the league. Um, so I think that's going to be I think that's going to be normal. Need to improve their home form. Um, and for Cardiff, uh, they they struggled to convert a number of chances. It astounds me that they're now the lowest scorers in the league. Um, but it was a good win for them, good three points, but they, they need to do a lot better in front of goal. Alice Sims made his first start since coming back from injury, which is a big positive for Sunderland. And finally, Middlesbrough and Bristol City drew one all. It means Michael Carrick's had a win, a draw and a loss in charge of Middlesbrough. Right now it's time for this. Yes, it's time for the news and Liam Rosinia has finally been appointed as head coach of Hull. He signed a two and a half year deal. Caretaker boss Andy Dawson will be staying on the coaching staff. Rosinia says returning to the club gave him goosebumps. Uh, Justin, we've spoken about this quite a lot now because it's taken a week and a bit for Rosinia to actually come in. But Andy Dawson staying on as, as coach, do you think that's important? I think so. It's that continuity is a good coach as well. Um, obviously, Brasini's bringing Justin Walker in from Derby, who who he had um, at Derby, uh, who was working with him at Derby, I should say. Um, so I think it's a steady team. And Andy Dawson has done okay as interim manager, as far as interim manager spells go. And he's clearly a well-liked coach. But I think that local feel of yeah, two Hall legends on the coaching staff, one being the manager and one being Andy Dawson, I think it's a very good place to, place to be in a team that could have looked quite unrecognisable considering the amount of changes that's happened over the last seven or eight months. 
Birmingham's proposed takeover remains under investigation by the EFL. It's been scrutinised for more than three months now and the EFL says the matter remains ongoing. Businessman Paul Richardson has told TalkSport his consortium is already funding the club but hasn't revealed how much has already gone in. I just don't know what's what we say about this takeover anymore, Justin. What, why is it taking so long? The EFL haven't given us any closure on why they haven't managed to go any steps further with it. I just don't get it. No, it's it's a, it's a weird one, isn't it? And I think it. I, I think there does need to be a little bit more transparency. Um, the, I, I hate to go back to it, but there was a lack of transparency from the EFL and all parties involved about the derby process. Um, I do think supporters need to be kept in the loop. All stakeholders, all stakeholders need to be kept in the loop because there's potentially jobs on the line at Birmingham City of normal people working regular jobs at the football club um, who could be you know, victims of this takeover not going through, for example. Um, so I do think uh, transparency is needed uh, within the realms of an NDA, obviously. So that way you, you're keeping everybody updated. You're not being scrutinised yourselves because... Everybody knows the information. Just saying that there's no update is is, is really poor form. Huddersfield defender Yuta Nakayama has been ruled out for the season with an Achilles injury. It also means the Japanese international will miss the World Cup. Really sad news for him on a personal level. Of course, no player wants to miss the World Cup. And for Huddersfield, uh, it's big news as well because I'd say he's been one of the few positives for them this season. Yeah, he's been a really good performer, whether that be at left wing back or on the left side of the uh, left side of the uh, of the back three. Um, massively disappointed for him. There's been quite a few injuries um, crop up. I, I think that's down to the schedule, the amount of games the players have had to play. No physiologist, but fatigue is going to factor in here, and unfortunately, you're going to get uh, quite a few injuries from it. But more so, gutted that he's going to miss um, the World Cup. They they don't come around very often. There's there's a lot of players now, elite players, players not in the elite realm um, who have now picked up Knox and, and well not Knox but serious injuries who, who will miss it it's, it's desperately sad for, for all of them Well Nakayama's injury comes after Oli Turton was also ruled out for the long term this week so Huddersfield looking very short at the back when it rains it really pours for them at the moment doesn't it The Athletics says Watford captain Tom Cleverley will be missing until at least February having had surgery on an Achilles injury Kyan Harrett, or Kian Harrett, apologies if I pronounced his name wrong, has returned to Huddersfield from his loan at Bradford after being found guilty of hair coursing. For those that don't know, it's an illegal blood sport where dogs are used to chase and kill hares. The 20-year-old was found guilty and fined for daytime poaching along with two other men. So, a bit of a disturbing story. And finally, in transfer news, the Sun says Manchester United are interested in Norwich defender Max Ahrens. The report says they're considering paying £10 million for him in January. Justin, if you're a big club, would you pay £10 million for Max Aarons? I think so, yeah, because he's got potential. But for Christ's sake, like, is this just paper speculation or is someone actually going to put a bid in for him? Because I don't think Norwich have had any bids for him yet. Um, his agent's doing a terrible job and I know Norwich fans won't want to hear that. But if he was very good, if he was a very good agent, he'd have, he'd have bagged a move by now for more than that. I mean, Jamal Lewis moved on what seems like years ago. Uh, and Max Aarons was the better the better fullback. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd pay it because I think he's got bags of potential. Um, just played in the right system, he'd be a very good, defender, uh, very good uh, wingback. He seems to be linked with a big move away, doesn't he, every transfer window, <laughs> but nothing ever seems to happen. So it may just be one of them. It may be, who is the Portuguese midfielder who used to get linked with a Premier League move every single transfer window? I th- yeah, I know who you're on about. Uh, Carvalho, William Carvalho. 
I wasn't thinking of him, but he is someone who also who yeah. did get linked every single transfer window. Am I thinking of Moutinho? Is it Moutinho? Or am I thinking of Miguel Veloso? There's a there's a few Portuguese players who just seem to trend. be dancing around the Portuguese league for so long, get linked with a Premier League move, but never seem to happen for whatever reason. But there you go. Hey, let's do the polls, Justin. This is the part of the show where we give the listeners four questions on Twitter because we want to get their thoughts on everything to do with the championship. So firstly, which of these teams is most likely to get relegated? Blackpool, Hull, Rotherham and West Brom. The reason we said those four is because I think we can look at Huddersfield and Wigan right now saying those two are definitely the most likely but that third spot a bit difficult to nail down isn't it but which one of those four would you go for Justin or would you say someone completely different would I say someone completely different um I can't remember which four you said West Brom Blackpool Hall rather than uh that's really that's actually really difficult I don't think it'll be West Brom um I yeah, that's really hard to answer in a really short space of time um, if I was to throw a name out there, I'd say Blackpool out of those teams, probably. I'd probably say Rotherham, just because it's the it's difficult. That's really it's, it's the typical thing of resources. Rotherham don't have as many resources as the other teams down there. Uh, but thirty nine percent of people said Rotherham, thirty six percent said Hull, fourteen percent said Blackpool, eleven percent said West Brom. I think West Brom might be moving away from that now, but I I don't want to have that bite me back on the arse, but <laughs> nevertheless. Uh, will Burnley, Norwich, Sheffield United and Watford all finish in the top six? Yes or no? No, I think Watford might just miss out. You're really going to die on this hill, aren't you, that Watford aren't going to finish in the top six? I'm just not massively convinced by the squad balance. Um, I think Billish is doing a fairly decent job, but like I said, like we've, like we've said for the past couple of weeks in this episode, just don't think they're getting anywhere near top gear. Maybe Norwich might drop out because they concede far too many chances, but I expect Smith to sort that out. 57% of people said yes, those four will finish in the top six. 43% said no. And finally, were celebrations right to remove bounties, yes or no? Of course they weren't. Twix, Twix is a waste of time. No one, like, no, it's just caramel biscuit, right? Twix is a waste of time. Bounties are, I don't think they're elite, but they are they're the championship of chocolate i think they're underappreciated by um by the by everybody um outside of those who like them obviously we are second tier championship lovers we love the championship but people outside of championship don't really know much about it and that's the thing with that's the same thing with bounties i think it's a strange comparison (laughs) that doesn't make any sense at all i think everyone knows what bounties are justin unfortunately they are just not very nice and they're the reason why every time i have celebrations or every time i've ever seen a celebrations tin it's always bounty and snickers which are the ones left at the bottom no 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 your palate your palate your palate is terrible um we'll point out um but snickers are, are, are good i just think twix twix are a waste of time they're such a waste of time I will not have someone say my palate is terrible when they're a vegan. Um, <laughs> in answer to that poll, 57% of people said yes, celebrations were right to remove bounties. 43% said no, it was the wrong decision. So it's good to know 57% of our listeners have common sense. Right now it's time for this. Hi, Simon Grayson Edge.
Yes, it's time for Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. Welcome back to the show. Paul Mann from Elm Park Royals and Omar Renain from That Millwall Podcast. So I'm going to ask the boys here to name eight of a certain subject. All they've got to do is work together to name all eight. So, for example, if I were to say name the eight players who played the most minutes for England at the last World Cup, and Paul would say Jordan Pickford, that's one down, and Omar would say Harry Maguire, that's another down. But if Paul were then to say Phil Neville, then he'd be out. So what you need to do, chaps, is give me all eight answers without all of you being eliminated. So Justin isn't here for this section of the show so what i'll do is i'll give you both an extra life not one extra life each it's just the one extra life between you so be careful is what i'm trying to say so the world cup gets underway in two weeks time which is still a bit mental to me if you ask me but we'll continue the theme of world cup questions here on the second tier this week i need you to name for me the eight countries with the most wins in the history of the world cup so we shall kick things off. I'm talking about wins at the actual tournament, by the way, not the team who have won it the most times. Just to make sure that's clear. Uh, we'll start off with you, Paul. Can you name me the countries with the most wins in the history of the World Cup? Uh, Brazil. Absolutely. 73 wins, easily the most successful team in World Cup history, with the most wins and also the most times they've won the actual tournament. Omar, your go. Argentina. Yeah, they are fourth on the list with 43 wins. They're also the team I fancy it to win this year, actually. Uh, Paul, your go. Italy. Correct. They're third on the list with 45 wins. They won't actually be able to add to that at this year's World Cup because they're not going to be there, of course. Uh, Omar, your go. You've got five remaining. France. Yes, France are fifth. Of course, the current holders of the trophy as well. Yeah, absolutely flying, boys. You're halfway there. Paul, your go. Germany. Yep, Germany are second on the list. Them and Brazil, by far the most successful World Cup sides with 67 wins for the Germans. That means you've got three remaining. It's the three least highest on this list. Uh, Omar? This is when it gets difficult because you're thinking, like, do I go too broad or do, how do mm. I play this here? I'm going to say, I'm going to go Spain, take the risk. Yep, Spain are sixth with 30 yeah. wins yeah. at the World Cup. So you've got two remaining, Paul Mann. I go Holland. Yep, Holland are eighth Great, on the list. So just on there, the country with the most wins who haven't actually won the tournament. So that means there's one remaining, Omar. Can you guess who it is? <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uruguay. Uruguay are ninth on this list. So you've just missed them out. They had 24 wins, three wins off Holland. Uh, but you've still got your extra life. So you're still in the game, Omar. You've got one remaining, Paul. Can you name them? Uh, I am really struggling now. I'll be quite honest. Yeah. Um, oh God, I'm trying to think of a European team that could possibly be in there. Uh... Oh, I know it's not true, but I'm going to say England. I know it's not true. It's coming home. It's coming home. England are seventh yeah, on the really list right. with 29 wins. I wasn't sure if they were going to be on there, to be honest. But I was going to say England instead of you guys, to be fair. And I was like, no, it can't be England. It can't be England. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Having flashbacks to Algeria in the 2010 World Cup and Frank Lampard's lob not going over the line. But yeah. there we were, ladies and gentlemen. Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. We had winners on the show this week, which is not something we've been able to say very often here. 
here on the second tier. So well done, chaps, on your glorious victory. And you've done it without Justin Peach, which makes it all the better in my <laughs> eyes. But this has been the second tier podcast. We'll be back again on Thursdays to talk about the handful of midweek games we've got coming up in the championship this week. But a quick thank you to our guests on the show. Paul Mann from the Reading Podcast, Elm Park Royals. Thank you for your time today, Paul. No problem. Always enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Also with us is Omar Renane from That Millwall Podcast. Omar, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Ryan. Paul, nice to meet you. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. I've been Ryan Dilks and we'll be back again on Thursday. And a big thank you for listening.